Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, let's welcome our guest, Arun Aurora, author of Fast Times. Arun, thank you uh, for coming on today. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for having me. A pleasure. So, Arun, before we talk about the book, let's uh, find out a little bit more about your background. So, talk to us about your background and expertise. Well, um, probably makes sense to start before McKinsey because I haven't been a career consultant forever. Um, I started my career as a product manager at Apple. Then I was a technical advisor to Steve and then was part of the team that helped lead the design and implementation of Apple retail at the from first store forward. Uh, I left that to go to Sun Microsystems. Uh, I worked closely with Scott and Bill Reduschel. After Sun, I went to 3M, to, uh, where I worked for the prior two CEOs uh, on international operations and accelerating. I left them to go to Groupon, where I led global operations. Uh, then I left that to run the number two online business behind Amazon and helped turn it around. And then finally, I was a CEO of a nearly $10 billion retail and service business. Uh, and then I retired for a period of time and then came to McKinsey. Uh, where I, in the interim between my last job in McKinsey, I, su- I successfully managed to drive my wife and friends crazy with my downtime. So uh, McKinsey is my post-retirement gig. I've been Excellent. at McKinsey for five years uh, and a half. I started in Chicago and my family and I uh, moved to Madrid for two years. And now we're in Paris for the foreseeable future, but we've already been here for years. Fantastic. Very, very nice. You don't have much of a background. I'm not quite sure I understand how you have the background to write this book. The words come to me. Uh, why did you write this book and why this particular title? Most clients want to hear, what can I learn from others that did this right? Not, how do I avoid the problems that others may have seen before me? So this is literally the mirror image, but in a very different way. In, other than being the mirror image, it's a book that, you know, from the, from the physical design. So if you're reading on the Kindle, like, sorry. But the physical print version of the book uh, really tries to do one thing. Uh, and very deliberately designed that way, which is to drive engagement with the user from beginning to end. There's a question of every chapter. There's a set of questions at the end, how to continue the dialogue with someone in their teams. And the intention is the book is not a static engagement, but really the beginnings of, a, of an extension of engagement that comes with other people. So partly it was the content, partly was to do something innovative in the form factor, partly was the in- innovation in the uh, working exclusively with Amazon to publish this as their first business book. So there's a lot of innovation deliberately from how we even wrote the book. We wrote this agilely. We broke up into writing teams. We pulled this together. Uh, like if one's doing an agile squad, uh, very much aligned with that. So as much the content was meant to be provocative, the all the things around the book were, it, in my opinion, some of the most innovative things I've seen done in someone's effort to publish knowledge. How many people were on the team? Depends. At any given time, there were the four primary authors plus an extended team of up to probably another dozen people who were contributing ah. content. So we, you know, each primary author had an author too, 
on the content that they knew best and then pulling that all together with a common voice, uh, et cetera. Like this took real effort because, you know, we all write differently. We all have different points of view. Uh, and then it needs to be specific, but it needs to be real takeaways that are valuable to prospective readers. What are the three things you would like to see your readers walk away from after reading this? The learning matters. Learning matters too. Sometimes there's a contradictions in, uh, in our life, but it's okay at times, particularly with digital transformation, to go slow to understand where are all the problems, the issues, or opportunities to allow you to speed up. Speed, speed both in how your pace, but speed also in the deliberateness uh, which you go is super important to understand. If you're going slow because you're trying to methodically plan out where all the problems are to avoid, that's okay. Uh, so speed isn't necessarily only about going fast. So one is learning, two is about speed. And I think third for me is this importance of, of and again, I think if you ask all four of us as authors, you probably get two out of three the same and one third answer the difference, so I'll give you my third answer. Now, so I started learning, I started with pace, and I think for me the third one would be very simply the idea of how is agile, how, how do you uh, very deliberately construct and deconstruct teams to pass on knowledge to help seed other parts of the organization. It's an extension of learning. If I can get, add one more, if I, if you may. Sure. Me. Absolutely. The fourth one, the fourth one would be talent. Uh, are you, how, how, how do you think about investing in your people? There's too many stories I have of from prior lives and then in this life where people buying a piece of hardware, a plane, a, a, a massive sailing vessel, etc. no consideration. Investing in the team that runs it, massive consideration. And unfortunately, that's really what determines the utilization of your asset, whether the asset you know sinks or flies. Uh, all these dimensions where the, the pilot or pilots or the team is overlooked, but the asset itself is physical. You touch it, it's exciting. But the training's really important. So the idea of how are you thinking about developing rock stars? Maybe you don't even know how to attract rock stars or how to build rock stars. And having a it look it looking inwardly and understanding where are your shortcomings and talent and how to address it and build those capabilities. As much as I get excited about learning, I get excited about companies that are clients who actually say, you know what, I don't know how to do this well, but I know I, I now understand why I need to help my people. Well, is that what great championship coaches do? I mean, you know, that's the beauty of sports when you're watching Nick Saban at Alabama or anyone who's built successful organizations especially sports, because it's right there in front of us. That's what they're always talking about is, you know, how to go and find the right parts to fit in, but where you've come up short, how do you go and find improved assets in those particular areas? Well, one of the things, and when I started the book, I was wondering, how do you define digital? Yeah, yeah. I don't think of it as you start on someone's website or app, and then you have to go through the journey all the way to the end and then make your transaction. I think of, I I know I do, I'll, I'll speak for myself as a customer or a client or, or a prospective uh, party. I engage with digital for information. I may choose to go into retail to experience it. I may choose to go back to digital to get reviews. So there's a, I'm, like, I'm a bit like a, a, a tennis match. You know, I may go digital to retail, digital to call center. I, I continue to need to refine my, Shopping, if I'm shopping at this, or knowledge, where I'm getting more and more comfortable. 
And I think it's even true with if it's a very expensive purchase, a very considered purchase. Uh, if it's not, you know, razor blades that I know uniquely how exactly they're going to perform, and then it's just about price, that's a pretty simple journey for me. That's how I use digital. I may never look anywhere else. The minute it is more of a custom experience, maybe a vacation, uh, maybe, you know, furniture, anything that takes a bit of more thought or a lot more thought, I'm using digital as research, but I'm using lots of different venues for research. Uh, it, and then I may be entirely fine, as I did for a family vacation recently during COVID, the way of COVID ending, uh, to purchase the whole thing on the internet. Totally fine. But not before I understood all the dimensions about how it impacts, you know, what's, what's how my wife's going to enjoy it, how my kids are going to enjoy it. Do I have all the information to make sure I understand how to answer their questions for it? At the place we haven't been, so there's gonna be lots of questions around that. Like, is it is it something that I feel like now I'm ready to make that final transaction and put my credit card on? Yep, got it. The night go. So to me, digital doesn't have to be converting the call center. Digital is a very big influence in how and steers my journey. Oh, there's no question, right? You could go on Amazon and you take a look at how many buyers and the reviews that sways you about whether you're gonna get that buy that product or not, even for this podcast. Uh, the fact I have so many authors who've been happy coming on the show has uh, attracted more authors. And now I'm already booked through March of next year. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, because of the digital age, that makes that happen. So did I understand this correctly in the book that the winners need to be willing to outspend the competition to get an edge? Uh, sorry, to outspend the competition? Yes. So, I mean, you, do you mean like, uh, just so I understand, because you're referencing the book, do you mean like to, like, in the context of their digital transformation, they need to spend, their, if their competition is spending $5 million, they need to spend 10 or whatever that may be. That, that's implicit. Yeah, and maybe I misunderstood, maybe I misunderstood that when I was reading it. No, then I, I, no, I don't think so, because I, I think what, I mean, certainly we, I don't have a point of view on how much you need to spend, but what I, and I don't. If we, and I don't think we've conveyed one like that in the book, so let me maybe help reset a little. To, for a recent client uh, about learning and apply learning to about the scale of the amount of money that you spend, maybe that might help. Uh, half a billion dollar business uh, in a 60 day window, we were able to help scale their business together with them six acts in 60 days. I kind of like that alliteration too, it makes me smile a little. <laughs> but if you think about that run rate, the team that they had to do that from their side and ours was just a few human beings. And it wasn't 50 people, even though the impact was 6x. It was three people from us and like five from them. And the volume of impact that it has created is hundreds of people that could now be, you know, to help manage that greater business that they wanted to. Or they can now put it on digital if they can, you know, convince the, the new clients to stay on digital. They didn't need to spend massively at all. In fact, it was a minority. In fact, really a minority of minority to really drive that impact. And so I think there's this idea of like, where where were their problems? And maybe I, I can use them, for example, about the stepping back and going slow. Their, their call to action, you know how like a, you know, the button that allows you to move forward in the journey, it yeah. was below the, when, it, when it's below the fold, you know, where you have to keep scrolling, you lose somewhere between 30 to 50% of your customers every time you go below the fold. And this call to action was two full, two screen folds below. Uh, this made it hard for a prospective 
patient, and this is a, a healthcare, a med tech client, to actually provide their information because they didn't know where to go. Because they got frustrated after each, you know, scrolling and then left. In like seven hours, we redesigned it, we implemented it, and then it, and you could just literally see the uplift from one change. Uh, digital marketing had been, had been deprioritized by the call center as a primary lead channel. In two days, it was the primary lead with better quality leads because the leads were about like I think in the first two days left like two or three x what they were getting through phone calls, and then it just scaled nicely thereafter. And at the point of the story is that to me, these small little actions where we understood the pain points to be was where the effort was spent. So if you look at the first day or two, what things did everyone do? It looked like that much. But the two, three, and four, there were a lot of action because now we understood the problem. We understood exactly what to do. And by day five, uh, the client was saying, you know, look, I have a global company. How do I, how do I make this a global program? You uh, mentioned a rate of return for first movers and early adopters. It, uh, what is it and does a company actually achieve it? And is it worth being first? Because you see all the great success stories that right now, like Facebook and Google and others who were not first movers. So I I won't speak to, you know, the the FANG companies of the world because those aren't typically my clients. And we should really write write the book with them in mind. Maybe I I talk about a retailer who, um, uh, you retail here in Copenhagen, in Denmark, where they're based. Or I can talk to you about uh, another party, a telco, who was a first mover with a new brand. But in either one of those examples to me, uh, given how much the economics have changed, uh, being a, uh, we've all heard the phrase safe harbor strategy. It, being number one is expensive. Being number two, it's hard. We've all heard a version of that. And maybe even number three, depending on your point of view and what the economics may be. With digital and how much the last five, 10 years that has collapsed the economics for anyone who's a late joiner for a and I'm picking on consumer and B2B journeys, the, the majority of the economics are for the first mover. There's hardly any economics remaining for the second party. If you're third, it's too late. You've, you've lost. The second, now most of our data shows that, frankly, you don't, there's no real, there's not a positive return for being a second mover. There's no safe harbor. So the reason for first mover, when you see an opportunity, is that digital has so collapsed with safe uh, it's super important. That's all, that is holding true whether it's a consumer business or a business to business, a business. Owner. So, what kind of spend is required, or what does the formula look like? Because I know different size businesses require different size spends, but how do you figure that out? Uh, and and I think most of what you're talking about is like uh, everything that isn't part of the Fang world, you know, manufacturing those types of things, and, and that's the vast majority of people who even listen to my show. So. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, like, what what is so? I mean, I can talk about one market. How how much it costs to create a digital business for one market? Then it gets very complicated very quickly. If you are in like one of my clients in twenty six markets around the world, and truly a global business, or a different client that's in seventy three, how much then they have other other considerations of decision making. One is how much is central versus how much is decentralized. Is, and is there any middle ground? And is that middle ground regional? And and what happens where? Think of more like a racing model. Who has what decision rights? And then also that aligns usually to budgets. So very quickly, this is complicated when it's beyond one market. And then is it regional or is it local? Uh, and what happens in that market? And sort of what is expected? What is the KPI? 
uh, that they're measured to. But the simplest way I look at it is in a single market uh, with a, let's say, let's, let's make everything simple, simple product line, simple market. I think, in my opinion, and I like to advocate, I think there's three different ways people can think about a digital business. And this digital thing doesn't have to be able to tra- transact online. It could be also just where you get information. The one, the company that isn't, uh, that stayed on Shopify, do you think that there's a period of time you should stay on it and to really maximize your potential, you should be building your own thing? Or do you think, uh, and because I'm wondering, are they leaving money on the table? Are they not giving the best effort possible? Because I can understand using Shopify or any of these as a way to dip your toe into the water or as an MVP and then seeing what the results are and then going to the next level. What's your thoughts on that? I, I, I think partly again, based on ambition. Uh, maybe you just don't know what you can do and what the value of data. But but I don't think I, 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 I'd rather not comment so much on either in Shopify or the specific. What I think is that there's value to each of the steps in the journey. Maybe a lovely way to start Shopify. There's also value in considering the alternatives. But I think what I, as I mentioned prior, I think one of the biggest things that I can suggest for anyone is that probably if I look at all my client work or my prior work, one's ambition in digital is largely, most likely, significantly underestimated. And understanding under, and what is possible and how does it go, how do you think about all the things one needs to do to go after it? Uh, I think it, it becomes both daunting but also inspiring. And I, if I look at whether it's my little, re, my the client that I mentioned in Denmark, oh my God, the company's super excited. They didn't have this channel before. This idea of how they've over-invested in digital now as a future growth engine in the company to raise their ambition, how they thought about people, both capability building their existing people, but also hiring rock stars, the idea of the commitment they made to retail and digital and how they find synergies between the two. Uh, you can imagine all the, the stories in the U.S. as well, like the buy and pick up the store. Those are all straightforward. How do you actually connect to and mark the salesperson in the store when you're online? You're super knowledgeable on a topic uh, because that's how you're configured in the system. You're in the store right now. I get to interact with you on the online platform, and you get to tell me, hey, you can buy this either online or in the store. Very few companies, well, this doesn't sound sci-fi, actually still can do this. And then you can take that actually answer and make it super more compelling. But very few companies even do that. So the idea that there's real synergies between digital and retail and think about how to drive that engagement, both with people and client, I mean, this is what gets me excited. Because the more the unique the experiences are, not just the word sticky, I think it's a fine word, but I think the reality is it creates really compelling reasons to come back. Because we all want to solve either problems or create opportunities for ourselves. And we want to do it quickly and thoughtfully, not be treated rudely, feel like we got the information, got a good price, and move on with our lives. And be efficient. But it doesn't have to be at the expense of not actually being human. And what I find is that this connection they make by driving retail and, and online is incredible because you feel connected to, like in this case, monthly in-store associates. And then you get to actually send Mark messages offline when you have other questions about other products, Mark, you know, I don't know it, but my colleague Phil does, or Susan, wonderful. And that was you were expanding the community of people who you can engage in the store. I look at that no different than the medtech client I mentioned. There's an incredible way that that user testimonies and turned into testimonials themselves have created a community that you can create outreach for from the medtech client. 
So you can go learn about their own experiences and how you two can personalize the product for your needs, independent of the company. It's a very, when you turn individuals into, into activists, uh, I think it's a really compelling outcome. So I, I get excited because these things are ambitions that, frankly, most of our, our companies we work with, uh, and I'm not saying McKinsey, I'm saying in general, like we as customers, we as individuals, we see very few experiences like this. Um, what, what kind of talent and skills are needed? Uh, what does the company need to bring on board to make this happen? I think, um, I think probably actually that's a great question to ask as you think what your ambition is. So if you say, look, my ambition is to start small, there's you know plenty of simple ways to get to have a digital transformation. If your ambition is to like, look, I'm going to, I want to have a disproportionate engagement with my customer. I want to over time reduce my cost. Like the ambition keeps getting bigger and bigger. Then the skills that one needs to align to that outcome probably gets quite broad. And if I if I tell you how, at least how I work uh, prior to McKinsey, I really want to understand the problem I'm solving to before I start figuring out who are the individuals that I can recruit against. And what I like about this approach, and I've seen my clients and I've heard my clients use it, you deeply understand the problem you're solving. Does the prospective candidate have experiences that either are the same or consistent with the problem you're trying to solve? And because mostly what, what you know, when you're asking about you know, what skills you need, most, most companies, the way they do, they think of a business unit and say digital. And, you know, the difference between traffic generation and conversion, the difference between MarTech skills and CRM skills, it may not all be apparent what goes where. But if what you're trying to drive is, I want to increase my digital penetration of my business from digital or call center, starting with digital, but it could be digital is digital, digital how is it that I can hire what type of people that have done that type of experience? And that's a very different answer. I only care about digital revenue that only start beginning digital. So I think being considered to understand the problem you're solving, and deeply understand it, I think makes the type of profile either more considered or allow you to be more refined in who you are or get picky. Uh, what's the number one barrier to digital effectiveness? Um, <laughs> I, I think it's the enemy of learning. So I, I strongly believe that, unfortunately, many, many individuals in their careers, that their companies didn't reinforce the importance of learning at some point, probably possibly even early into their careers. And the problem with that is the value of learning. So that to me, the value of learning is not just the enthusiasm for one's job that it gets that you get to be excited about what I learned today and how do I apply it tomorrow, which is super important to drive retention and all the other benefits. It's not only important for like driving one's engagement to one's job, but I think applying those learnings, like you know, just with a client earlier today, and they they tried nine things, nine tests, uh, four did not work, five did, and the, and not all five they can easily scale up in their one division. They need other support from other divisions. So now three of them, they need to go coordinate and say, hey, here's what we learned. It might actually be applicable for you. Two, they're going to scale up immediately. That indication of not only am I connected to the two tests that worked and successfully that I can now scale up, but I'm also now impacting positively the rest of my company. 
you should see the, the power of learning applied to impact that they got from work they've done over the last week. And now they can't wait to refine that to start new tests starting tomorrow. And so I, when I think about the idea of, you know, what is the thing that limits people? It's the, it's the, the de-emphasis on learning. Learning to me is, should be a lifelong pursuit. I know it seems like a cliche, but when it happens in a company and when, and largely through agile is one of the ways it gets implemented, uh, it is very, there's a culture change. I, I watched this happen two weeks ago with the same client, huge client. The 40 people in, uh, working on digital with us in Agile, uh, at least I heard 30 voices say it, they never want to go back to the prior work. They're learning, they're excited. That was a direct quote. So uh, uh, this leads into uh, how do you reward failure in a positive way? Because I think every every CEO talks about doing what yeah. you just did, and, yeah. and, but the people are worried that if I fail, what happens to my career and everything else? So how do you, you know, authentically reward failure in a positive way? In a prior life, I wish we knew each other because I can't demonstrate it to you with my town halls. Mm-hmm. I would do A-B tests and test, talk in front of my full organization about how I failed. Mm-hmm. And then I would encourage others to try failing and tell me what experiments they ran and who succeeded and who failed. And what, and as long as, and I stay very clear, there has to be boundaries. You can't, you can't risk the company's future financially. These have to be you know, reasonable tests with reasonable exposure. If there's any debate on reasonableness, personal finance, et cetera, can help them with what's reasonability. But to the degree we're, we're learning, we have a budget for it, and we're applying it, then celebrating failure should start as much top-down, but also back. And so I like to show them, and I, I, I totally did. Like, look, I tried four tests of this with my, my last role with CEO. I tried four tests. Two didn't work, two did. If I take the two that worked and I scale them up, I, I think I just paid for probably 20 people's salaries today. But you know those two tests that didn't work? Blame me. Totally fine. <laughs> totally. Fine. And I and I, by the way, if it turns out that my ratio of success to failures actually gets worse, that's okay. As long as I somehow learn from what didn't work and scale up what did. As long as I'm constantly learning and not honestly repeating the same mistakes, that would be terrible. So I need to find some way to institutionalize it that I can actually make sure that I I don't apply new tests without taking consideration of ones that came before. But, but I do think that in, a, in an organization, the executive should as much lead the way as the team that do the work. And you should celebrate both ends of it. Because if you see it's being uh, magnified or amplified with the executive feedback that, you know, look, I tried, I failed, but that's okay. And here's what I learned. That's a statement that you make. And, yeah, and I think that's super important for them to see it and know that somebody can still get promoted through making honest mistakes, but learning through them. Uh, from the look of speed the back, that the vaccines were developed, which is amazing because I used to work with a biotech CEO in the early 90s, and you're always 10 years out from seeing something like this. The, the way they developed uh, this vaccine, which was very much uh, digital uh, invested, right, because of AI and a whole bunch of other things, what industries are spending the most in the digital area and getting the greatest return? You know, I um, I, I just give you a few reflections. I don't actually, where, so where I spend my time, the clients I serve, and I'll just pick on myself, or we as a firm also serve, I spend a lot of time with tel- uh, telco clients, banking clients, 
consumer clients. I'm picking on myself for a moment. And um, if I look at the work I do, and I'm speaking, uh, personalize it to me, I think that the idea of, I look at my clients, these are clients that had may have not invested in digital as much, but because they've seen the momentum of impact accelerate from a from a, an initiative they started or an initiative maybe we've helped them, but now they're taking over, I've watched how quickly they have pivoted to, we need to continue this investment, this idea of the math behind the, you know, it's first mover advantage, how the importance of talent. So they'll you'll see the idea that between the people, the quantity they invest in people or technology or both, how they think about time, their time scale is no longer quarters and years, but days and weeks, even. I, have, I mean, one uh, uh, quick service restaurant chain used to think in quarters for digital impact. Now they think in days and because they know now if they do a test, they can learn the answer in, in five, six, seven, eight days once it reaches statistical significance. That's very different than putting up a TV ad or a print ad and waiting. And so, the, and so now they know they can apply those insights from digital marketing into the offline media and keep amplifying their returns. So when I think about how impact is drive impact and the time scale which is being compressed is driving people's uh, focus on people, time, and resources, I think it's amazing. Because digital is not just a channel that you can largely put up aside and spend some money on and call it a day. Digital can influence so much of the rest of your organization uh, if done well. And that's where, that's where I get really excited is that watching these clients uh, in my disc life get very excited about what's possible and watching them actually start you know attaining what's possible uh particularly through learning learning to me is a big unlock in all this oh mark i think you're on mute sorry one of the things i thought was very interesting in your book uh was according to your research retailers capture less than 40 percent of the value of the data and manufacturers less than 30 percent why is that? Well, I mean, I can give you a bunch of examples. Like, imagine you imagine you you build a product, and you're excited about the digital growth that comes, but you don't know if you should or could invest and create your own digital direct consumer business. So you put it up on a marketplace. Pick your favorite marketplace, whichever one it may be. Maybe it's the one that is, is like a river uh, in the in Brazil. The reality is, it is very very compelling. That growth is amazing. But what is it? What is the alternative? How do you build that direct relation with customer? What are you, what are you choosing to do if you do that? So uh, a wonderful phrase I heard well, a year and a half ago was, if not now, when? So once you understand the implication of how, how much growth is possible in the various marketplaces, what are you foregoing? And if you are going to forego it, if not now, when? And the idea to me is, Having a direct consumer business, you get to have one on a progressively more possible have a one on one relation with a customer. You get to deepen that relationship, not mo- just monetize it. That's that's fine, but that's a very one sided part of it. How do you actually excite them with the brand? Make sure that they get the products, information they need when they need it. Like, how do you actually deepen their engagement? But you can't do that if you make choices like putting it on our marketplace. It's hard. It's really hard to do that. To do both. So if you give up the data, if you give up direct consumer because of the convenience and ease, then you will forego those other opportunities that engagement was possible. 
And then I, I come back to my simple question: If not, now when? And we've uh, all moved, we've all moved more and more to digital. I mean, I can I mean I can't I can't imagine that anyone who doesn't hear this, if they look for a car, they haven't started a journey somehow in digital. If they thought about looking for a home, who doesn't use one of the real estate apps here in the U.S. This didn't, we didn't have this twenty years ago. And if you think about how in every five year increment, how our lives become progressively more digital, the reality is the information is is quite transparent. This gets me to AI, uh, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, and mm-hmm. knowing how the drugs got developed even quicker because of this. AI had a huge hand in saving the world. Are, are we in the beginning or the midpoint of AI's capabilities, and where will it make the greatest difference, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I, 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 one, I, I'll speak as an individual. Neither McKinsey nor as a technologist prior. Because I, I don't actually work that much on the AI. I, but I will say this as far as what I'm personally blown away with is that the possibility of AI impacting our, our, how, we, how our commerce, how we shop, how we get care, uh, et cetera, has all, all been well understood. But the, the confluence of events between the cost of technology, the availability of cloud, the, the engagement of companies to actually deploy it and try it, now the fruits of those insights are now actually materializing. Do I think it's going to accelerate? Absolutely. Actually, if it doesn't, almost a bit shame on us. But where will that impact happen? It's happening in places, honestly, I didn't even expect. Um, and so I, I think I think when I look at where I've now most recently heard AI deployed in whole new areas that I, 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 I'll, I'll give you an example: predicting fruit. The, the fruit demand, and by extension, how much acreage you plant. That may seem silly, but what are the inputs of going to fruit demand? Well, what, what are influencers saying? We didn't have influencers 10 years ago. So if we think about how the market for fruit has changed, and today's recipe that's hot is not tomorrow's recipe or next year's recipe, but buying land and what you plant in that land is unfortunately not a tomorrow decision. It's a months in advance decision. And how do you have a good forecast of what you need to do? That is really hard. Uh, I think I think the idea of using AI to complement your insights, it puts real pressure on the operating model of how people work, how teams leverage it. And frankly, how do they also do it very transparently so customers, clients, management can take advantage of it. Uh, I think speed is important, but understanding that from like an imaginary how much of you know, if AI tells you, you know, what, what are the implications? There's still a role for us as individuals who have you know, human experience. But I do think there's some very simple insights that come from AI on how one may improve one's you know, efficiency of one's business. So how do you complement those two that are super important uh, and not at the expense of one or the other? You write about improving keywords and leveraging SEO. And with so many consulting firms offering this service, how is it possible to leverage SEO over competitors to drive new business? I mean, not everybody can end up on the on the first page, uh, even if you're looking at it in a micro way by just being on the first page in Philadelphia, where I'm located. Mm-hmm. So I think there are, there are creative things one can do about how do you test a, a set of words uh, from organic words to intent-based keywords one might buy through a CM. 
uh, so for example, let's say we have a phone, we have a, a, a smartphone, and uh, that, that let's say it's an Android, a Samsung smartphone. It doesn't, doesn't matter what thing. But mark your phone gets dropped and gets broken. It's screen cracked. Are you are you searching for Samsung, Android? No, you're searching for a cracked screen. You're, you might search, you might think, look for DIY options. You might look for local repair shops. But those and how what motivates us in the moment uh, once you're past the point of owning it, how to maintain it. Saying those words against them is still as much power as it is science. And I'm amazed at how much that gets lost. So if I, that little example about cracked screen, I recently asked a, a group of people in the audience, like, write me all the versions of the CPU that would come to mind. I think the max someone got was 11. There's about 93. But at least the, uh, across a group of people, what was the maximum number we could cumulatively come up with? 93. But those 93 weren't being bought by their client, by their company. And I use that as one example is probably one of the primary use cases of problems other than maybe roaming, et cetera, that is just neglected. But really thinking about it and accumulating all the various ideas into what gets bought. Or rewriting the SEO with that in mind of the 93 is the other way to apply it. And what turns out is a is a good idea it turns into a, a massive windfall of traffic if you unlock it. Uh, which digital areas should be outsourced and which ones should be kept in-house? And how do you determine you know, what that mix should be? I think, well, uh, I'll start with, with a simple answer. It's probably, not, it's probably too simple in some ways. I think one part for me is where you are may determine your talent pools. So maybe, you have, maybe you're in a very technical area in whatever country you're in. And that technical area means that you have more access to engineers, to computer science. That may mean that your technology stack may be something that you should control more. Um, or as an alternative, maybe you have access to more marketers, digital marketers, and specifically, terrific. If you're not in, in tier one metro, these choices are real consideration. Because there are metros where, frankly, you might not, you might get none of the prerequisite skills at scale of people, then it becomes trade-offs. How much do, how much can you do with what you have and who might help you amplify through third parties? So I've seen, for example, one company had only the technical team, but none of the marketing team. Because their area would not provide for any real marketers or stuff. I had another client who had one or two people across everything, but it was quite shallow, as you can imagine. They really needed amplification from a bunch of different firms that had real specialties in the in the respective so I wish it was a simple answer, but I will say this. It's, if I look at from when I started in, in uh, the corporate world to now, the competition for real expertise has gone nothing but up and up and up. And understanding what is good versus great versus like unicorn is, is really itself also worth a lot too. Because if you can differentiate between who is good versus amazing, uh, I think the impact is also oversized for someone who's amazing versus someone who's just good. Uh, right now, and we 
we're worried about this because of what's happened with the pipelines in the U.S. where they've been compromised and so forth. When the electricity goes out or the internet is compromised, the world literally comes to a halt. How easy, how easy is it for a black hat hacker to either severely damage or destroy a company by taking over its IT infrastructure? And is there really any way to fully mitigate potential annihilation? I, I mean, Mark, I, I think it's a very topical question. I, I myself am not a, I'm not neither a cybersecurity expert nor a black hat hacker. Uh, so I'm happy to talk uh, how I think, when you think about a digital transformation, the importance of cybersecurity. But me, myself, I would be, uh, I would not be able to articulately speak to it, so I don't want to uh, mislead anyone. I think cybersecurity is a, a tremendously important topic, not just from all the stories that one sees out right now between the ransomware, et cetera. I mean, it can't be underestimated because part of it is, I mean, a big part of this is human. How do they get access to these things? You know, from the phishing attacks, et cetera. But part of it is an education of, I think, a workforce, what not to do. But I think also part of this is the importance that cybersecurity plays. Much like we take for granted electricity, cybersecurity should not be taken for granted. Uh, and I think that, unfortunately, too often I see that happen. I, I just wonder now if we should be unplugging certain key elements of the world, uh, you know, the infrastructure, I should say, and unplug those things and go back to uh, go old school on some of these things only because of the high risk. Uh, that seems to be involved because everything that's you know starts out good could end up ugly um, based on who's using the technology, right? I saw as a total aside about thinking about going back to the future. The idea on uh, 16 Minutes, I still love watching 16 Minutes, of how the the nuclear facilities uh, for the ICBMs, how that's not only are they not connected to the SA world, but everything's on a five and a quarter uh, floppy disk, and I think that. You know, that is really taking into account cyber where there is no way to penetrate. So I think, uh, I think, look, it's a, it's complicated. I'm, I myself am not an expert and I don't want to portray myself as, but I think this should be a topic of how companies plan for cyber, uh, particularly if they are important to the infrastructure of a country. I think that's super important. But also, if they're not just important for their own well being as a going concern. So, so almost every country, every company should have some point of view on, on how they're addressing it. Uh, in your research, what new technologies affecting the digital world are on the horizon, and how will you see that changing business? Because I'm sure you see all, you see things before most all of us see those things. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, and I'll, I'll show it to my kids. My son was saying, uh, I try to get he tried to get information from customer service for his. Uh, in bank account. I said, show me how you did it. Because I knew who we were all had the same bank. Uh, and I and I didn't know he knew his um well I didn't know he knew how to call them. So I, I didn't think that that's what he did. Instead he's he was chatting with the chatbot. And he didn't know it was a chatbot. He just thought it was the person on the other side of it. I said, so you this whole interaction, all the information you got was from this? He goes, Yeah. And you know that's software. He's what? Like I, I cannot be right. There's no way my dad is right on this. <laughs> and he, he had the transcript. We looked at him like, no, but see, see what it's powered by? So then we pulled up in the internet. I should like, and then he read it. So we had to see it for himself because, you know, dad can't, be, dad can't be right. But once he understood that basically he was having a full discussion over his financial account, 
with an AI chatbot. Wow. What, I mean, mind blowing. It never occurred to him this was never a person. It was that good. And if you look at the script, honestly, it was really good. I think of that going, you know, we, we, our need for connection, I worry if I'm thinking about little one back reverse now. Like, technology might also create barriers for us to have a human connection. I think it's also super important. And I think companies should be mindful where do you insert human, humanity into it versus just technology? It's definitely more efficient. And my son didn't know better, but I can think of many examples, particularly when it comes to personal products, whether that's cosmetics, apparel, you know, uh, to, you know, one of financial products for me, I think about given my age and, you know, I got to think about kids and death and all that good stuff. How do I, how do I choose the humanity of it? And I think there are moments to inject that humanity that should not be lost. But I, yes, there's many technologies. I was particularly blown away at the metal 3D printing of, of, of objects that can go into machinery that runs, you know, engines, etc. It's amazing the quality, uh, how that's infecting design of products, and that that design that is no longer constrained by the simple poured metal, but it's a printed metal. Wow, like you know, you know, we didn't have these things years ago. Oh yeah. How then how that's jumping ahead to now, you know, the incorporation of other other substructures. Like it's just incredible how our world around us is being shaped by this on-demand dimension of, of uh, but the day-to-day stuff, I still find is uh, quite compelling. What new jobs uh, should companies create and what new skill sets will be needed do you see for the future with your clients? I think um, understanding data, not just Understanding insights. The, the, the bit of the problem of the digital world is there's so much data. How do you apply what tools to understand what are the great insights to learn from it? Or not to do, both to do and not to do. There's so much data. Some companies are very active in taking advantage of, some are quite more passive, but the data is almost overwhelming. And it well exceeds what's capable in Excel almost immediately for some companies. So, you know, how do you get individuals to understand not just how to be good at digital, but then find the, you know, the, the needles amidst the haystacks, and the haystacks are massive. And those needles are worth massive if you actually take the time to understand, okay, so this is what the customers are telling us. Mixed all that, how do I, you know, what, what, what is the next best thing I do with this? How do I improve that engagement because of it? What, what don't they want from me? And, the, the beauty of that is that the data, which, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have access. Now it's incredible. But having people who really understand how to go find it uh, versus, you know, plugging in, just dropping into Excel, like, it, the job of understanding insights is being harder because of all the data. So here's my last question. I've seen this, we've, we've been heading in this direction. Do you think the vast majority of people are going back to an office? I mean, everybody has gotten so used to working uh, from home, except for those who were, you know, in, in let's say, in the hospitality restaurant uh, type business. And uh, I, I often hear my daughter say that her, and she's 30, her the young people, they'd like never to go back in an office. They'd like to stay from home. But I think the leaders not only have a big investment in space that they've already made, but have this concern that 
without people uh, coming back in, new ideas will not germinate because they won't be uh, connecting together. And I had a neuroscientist from uh, Penn come on the show, and he said that without us going to the office over the past year, people lost 22% of their brain power because of the lack of interaction. So with technology the way it is, do you see that we're going to go back into the offices full-time? Will it be a hybrid? What, what, what's your view? You know, I, I, I hear the spectrum of stories. I think that there is definitely parts of us, including myself, I know, if I just want to make it one man's, you know, point of the world, I know I'm excited about going shopping, going seeing and touching things, uh, the perspective I want to buy, taking my family to dinner. Um, I have, I have missed those things. I've also enjoyed the ability for myself to, because one of the benefits I, I view of McKinsey is I have a, a, an ability to engage clients who are across the world. But if in a world where we did everything face to face, that's not possible. You can't live on a. I mean, yes, you could live on a plane, but I choose not to just live on a plane to travel the world all the time. But I think when I get excited about how I can complement my my client service, both physically and virtually, I can serve a broader geographic uh, group of clients than I ever could, and I can still also get to know them and spend time with them and help them get counsel them. Uh, and when I do go face to face, but I am I'm really excited for myself and and my colleagues that I think this is in some ways a huge opportunity because in the past being constrained by a geography of say the United States or Europe doesn't allow you to easily go do things in Asia or Africa etc. But in many ways Zoom has unlocked that or whatever your platform of choice is. As long as you can balance the two, I think it's a richer outcome as individual, at least in this profession, but also as I hear my friends, also in other professions. But I do for my daily needs. I like going and getting my coffee. I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited about the idea of taking my family to dinner. And now that we get to do those things again uh, here in Paris, I'm I don't I would like not that to change. But I see how my my actual work experience has actually been amplified in a positive way by both. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to let me interview you today. The book was super interesting. I think all C-suite people need to read that book to get good insights for their own planning, no matter what the field is that they're in. Mark, thank you for the time. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, talk, for letting me talk a little bit about the book in the content. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.